Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. What do you do when you're sick? When you feel as if you need a little help? When your body can no longer protect itself? Well, you go to the hospital. A safe haven built on trust. And, of course, it can exist without that trust because even small mistakes can result in a loss of life. The idea that a doctor or a nurse might not have your best interests at heart, that they may be conspiring against you, is a chilling and terrible thought. And so it should come as no surprise that when a series of murders in 1991 took place in a hospital near Lincolnshire, England, it absolutely shocked the world. Even worse yet, the victims of these murders weren't adults. They were children. In March 1991, in the picture-perfect postcard tiny market town of Grantham, where everyone knew everyone. Five-month-old Paul Crampton had been suffering from a chest infection and wasn't getting better on his own. His parents watched him day and night, concerned like only new parents can be. They would quietly wake up in the middle of the night to stalk gently into his room and place a hand on his chest to make sure he was still alive and then watched him constantly with bated breath as they went about their days. Eventually, his parents concerned more and more with each passing moment that instead of their little tiny newborn son Paul getting better, well, he was getting worse. Resigned to the fact that they might need help, they wrapped him in a blanket and took him to the nearby hospital. Of course, it was the safest thing to do. The same thing any parent would have done. The Crampton family, with their baby son Paul Crampton cradled in their arms, arrived at Grantham Hospital, where they were dealt with kindly and compassionately upon arrival. Paul was quickly admitted to Ward 4, the pediatric ward, for a checkup, and was described by the hospital staff as a happy weezer. There was concern, obviously. He was a five-month-old making a trip to the hospital, and there would always be a certain level of tension whenever that was the case. A higher attention to detail with such a vulnerable individual. But no one was particularly worried. This was all just a precautionary measure, of course. It was two new parents bringing their infant in so that they could swiftly and efficiently deal with a routine chest infection. But all the same, after attending to Paul Crampton... Doctors decided to keep him overnight so that they could monitor him. Nothing serious, mind you, they just wanted to be sure there weren't any underlying health concerns. And Paul's doting parents were appreciative of the level of tender care that their child was receiving from trusted health professionals. But that easygoing calm 
that fell over the Cramptons quickly changed to sheer panic. After leaving for a brief time, as Paul was being tended to and watched and monitored throughout the night, the Cramptons did not return to find a healthier and happier young baby boy as they'd expected. Instead, they descended into a flurry of chaos. Paul was in the arms of a nurse, gray, cold, and clammy. Paul's heart had virtually all but stopped beating, and his skin grew paler by the second. Doctors rushed to aid the poor child, and a resuscitation team was called, and the attending physician, Dr. Cherith, arrived to find Paul Crampton completely shut down. He immediately attempted intravenous line, recognizing the cold, pale, clammy symptoms as a possible hypoglycemic attack, and treated him with glucose. And then five-month-old Paul Crampton miraculously recovered. Paul's condition quickly improved as he absorbed essentially what could be called sugar water through an IV and the calm of the ward returned and his parents' panic subsided. But there were questions that still needed answers. Paul Crampton had a hypoglycemic attack where his blood sugar levels had been so low to an extreme point that his body essentially shut down. But why had it happened in the first place? And what had been the cause? There was absolutely no reason under normal circumstances that that would have happened to a baby child. The hospital staff were confused and remained worried without any answers. And while they looked towards Paul and his tests for answers, Paul's father felt as if something else was responsible, but not wanting to disturb the work of the doctors, looked around nervously as something felt particularly off about the situation. Had he known that Paul's hypoglycemic attack wasn't the only odd thing that had happened on Ward 4 in the previous few weeks, perhaps he would have removed Paul from the hospital taken him off Ward 4 and driven the extra distance to a separate hospital. But he had no idea what exactly was happening within the walls of Grantham Hospital's Ward 4, and neither did anyone else. In fact, Ward 4 was having a particularly unusual and bad string of luck in regards to its young patients. It was wintertime, so of course there was the usual increase in the number of admitted and sick children over the colder months. But that year seemed much worse. By all accounts, it was the worst winter Ward 4 had ever had. That winter, a seven-week-old baby, Liam Taylor, had been the first to die. Liam Taylor had been brought in, like Paul Crampton, with a common chest infection, a mild case of pneumonia, but within hours of being admitted to Ward 4, had unexplainably collapsed with respiratory failure. Pneumonia can be serious, and he was quite sick at the time, but he had deteriorated in a matter of minutes. Liam had signs of respiratory and cardiac difficulties, otherwise known as acute collapse, which was not usual of a mild case of pneumonia, nor was it expected by anyone who had attended Liam. The resuscitation team was called, like they'd been called for Paul Crampton, and were quick to inform Joanne and Chris Taylor, 
Liam's parents, that unfortunately it looked as if they wouldn't be able to do much for Liam. There was too much irreparable damage. Joanne and Chris had to make a terrible, heartbreaking decision. Liam wasn't getting enough oxygen. What would his life look like after this? He was only an infant, but all the same, there would be lasting consequences, and the possibility that Liam wouldn't suffer in the future was slim to none. Joanne and Chris informed the doctors that if what they were doing would most likely be futile, that they would rather let Liam rest. And a short time after, Liam Taylor, through ragged, short breathing, died in the warmth of his loving father's arms. The most genuine goodbyes are said in hospital rooms and corridors. The kind of goodbye that sticks with a person, whether it's a nurse, or a parent, or a patient. Those goodbyes are the lasting ones, the true ones. It's not a see you later. It's a quiet, genuine expression from the heart. Those are the I love yous that hurt. And although these moments aren't spared in hospitals, there seem to be little rest between traumas being experienced in Ward 4. Just two short weeks after Joanne and Chris Taylor had said goodbye to their seven-week-old son, having barely gotten to experience the joy he had brought into their life, 11-year-old Timothy Hardwick, a severely disabled child, was admitted after a seizure at school. The admitting nurse asked another nurse named Beverly Allett to finish admitting Timothy while she finished the drug rounds, administering prescriptions to patients, but before the end of that single round, Beverly called out that there was a problem with Timothy, the young boy who had suffered a seizure that day coming into the hospital just to be checked up, had turned blue and was barely able to breathe. His breath came out sounding forced in labor, and an emergency team attempted to resuscitate Timothy. But at 6.15pm, Timothy Hardwick was also pronounced dead. It was a never-ending list of tragedies hitting the pediatric ward of Grantham Hospital, a variety of tragedies suffered not only by the parents and the suffering children, but by nurses who attended these children, got to know them over a couple visits, perhaps recognizing the parents from the supermarket in their small town, or even seeing them afterwards, their eyes meeting and seeing the event mirrored in one another. But the horrific winter of 1991 was long from over. Five days after the loss of Timothy Hardwick, which was preceded two weeks earlier by Liam Taylor, a 15-month-old baby girl named Kaylee D. suffered two unexplained respiratory arrests while on Ward 4. The first came out of nowhere, shocking the staff and sending them running to attend the poor child. But it was the second that concerned everyone involved. They couldn't explain why Kaylee D. had stopped breathing the first time, let alone begin to rationalize how it had happened twice, the second time after being treated and attended to. 
Ward 4 had seen four unexplained, mysterious, and sudden incidents in close succession, and everyone was growing more and more unsettled. Doctors were upset, feeling as if they were at fault. Nurses cried, having known some of the children, and a sullen cloud hung over the pediatric ward as the echoes of loss ran through the halls. For David Crampton and his wife, though, the parents of five-month-old Paul, their luck seemed to have turned around as Paul was getting better. He hadn't suffered another hypoglycemic attack, and it appeared to be a freak event, an out-of-the-blue chance happening. Beverly Allett was the nurse on duty, and being the nurse on duty went to take down the drip and remove the IV attached to Paul's tiny hand. But out of nowhere, with no warning, Paul suddenly took a turn for the worst. His heart had stopped, he was no longer breathing, and his skin was sickeningly pallor. The resuscitation team, which had seen so much action those past few weeks, were once again quickly called to attend Paul Crampton and restart his heart. Everyone stood at attention, waiting, watching, praying that everything would be okay with the child they'd come to know through his time on the ward. And thankfully, unlike the previous tragedies, that day Paul Crampton would live and was successfully revived once more. And then, for the following three days, remained happy, healthy, and content. Paul was so stable, in fact, that despite the abnormalities, the incredibly unlucky turns and twists of his health, the doctors decided it was time for David and his wife to take Paul home. David, Paul's father, went to the hospital cafeteria to grab a small lunch, while nurses and doctors began the process of getting Paul ready to leave, doing their final checkup and processing the paperwork. But by the time David Crampton returned to his son Paul's room, well, Paul Crampton was having yet another hypoglycemic attack. Everyone was at a loss. There had been three separate mysterious and terrible incidents now that had occurred to Paul Crampton. And enough was enough. Doctors at Grantham Hospital and nurses on the pediatric ward had no explanation for what was happening to the young, beautiful, otherwise perfect baby boy, who by all accounts was as healthy as he could possibly be, despite the hypoglycemic attacks. Doctors realized that Paul might need help that the small hospital couldn't provide. And after being attached to another glucose drip, Paul Crampton was rushed to the much larger and well-equipped Queens Medical Center 20 miles away. Before Paul was taken by ambulance, an attending doctor, Dr. Porter, took a blood sample from Paul to have sent off to the University of Cardiff for analysis. Getting a jump start on finding any possible answer to what seemed to be more and more after each unexplained event to be a serious, undiagnosed medical condition. The ambulance arrived and Paul was carefully transferred to the back of the vehicle, and as Paul Crampton's worried and tearful mother got in alongside him, not willing to take her eyes off of the only thing in the world that mattered to her in that moment, a helpful and concerned nurse accompanied her. A nurse named Beverly Allett. Beverly had only started at the hospital, and everyone had been impressed with her composure given the state of crisis Ward 4 had been in. Four young patients had suffered unexplained cardiac arrests with two deaths. Meanwhile, Beverly Allett 
had been not only a caring and shining light through it all, even going so far as to volunteer to accompany the mother of Paul Crampton in the ambulance, but she'd also been present for all of the events. The situation continued to get worse on Ward 4. Five children had suffered in total, seven collapses and one death, that of nine-week-old Becky Phillips. Becky Phillips had come in with an upset stomach, infrequent vomiting and diarrhea. Her parents had only taken her to the hospital because she had been a premature baby. Her family was a bit concerned, but if it weren't for her premature birth, they wouldn't have even bothered. They arrived at Grantham Hospital as many do each day and had little Becky examined. But by that point, she had overcome her vomiting and was about ready to leave. She was put into the care of Nurse Beverly as she was being prepared to leave the hospital. Her parents picked her up shortly after and walked out the front door, their precious child feeling better and their worries having been assaged. But when she got home, Becky became irritated, uncomfortable, and then she began profusely sweating, a cold, clammy sweat. Becky collapsed and was rushed back to the hospital, but unfortunately shortly after arriving, passed away. Even though to you and I creep, it seems as if life couldn't possibly get worse for the Phillips family in that moment. It did just that, because Becky was not the only Phillips child. Worried about Becky's twin sister, given that the untimely death of Becky herself left everyone with a mountain of questions, Katie Phillips was brought to Grantham Hospital to be checked on and monitored by doctors. Becky was Katie's twin after all. If one had a genetic defect, it was likely the other would as well. And if the illness that had just then claimed the life of her sister was viral in nature, it was very possible that Katie, being in constant close proximity to her sister, might also have it. So once again, Katie's parents brought her into Ward 4 like they had Becky, as a precautionary measure, not willing to think of the possibility that they could lose both baby girls so suddenly. But within a short period, Katie stopped breathing twice. She was resuscitated both times, but due to lack of oxygen to the brain, suffered lifelong brain damage as a result. Beverly Allett, of course, had been there just in the nick of time and raised the alarm, and had actually found the problem and gotten Katie treated. In the eyes of the Phillips' parents, Beverly wasn't just a nurse. She was an angel that had just saved the life of their remaining daughter. And Beverly Allett was at the center of attention, once again miraculously, always the first to the scene. The other nurses were amazed at her instincts and ability to sense when something was wrong, and giving the parents the impression she always went the extra mile to care for their children. In fact, the Phillips even asked Beverly to be Katie's godmother. She had been there for both Katie and Becky. That's just how highly they thought of her. She was a guardian angel sent to Earth to protect their children in their eyes. And then on April 12th, 1991, 16 days after Dr. Porter had sent away the blood sample of Paul Crampton, the results were in, and they carried troubling news. What had been discovered was 500 milliunits of insulin per liter of blood, and in a child that range should have been 10 to 15. 
This was nearly 50 times that amount. But Paul Crampton had recovered miraculously after being transferred to the larger hospital. So it must have been a rogue sample, doctors at Grantham Hospital thought. Or perhaps even a malfunction of the pancreas, which had somehow righted itself. But over the next two weeks following the arrival of Paul Crampton's blood results, more children collapsed, including yet another horrible, tragic, and unexpected death. On April 12th, 15-month-old Claire Peck was brought into Ward 4 after a severe asthma attack, which wasn't uncommon. In fact, Claire was a bit of a regular, and all the nurses knew both her and her parents by that time. She was a perfectly beautiful little giggling baby girl who would come in, have her treatments for her asthma, and then once better would go home. It had all become so routine. But as the doctors pulled the family to the side to reassure them that their child would be okay after the most recent asthma attack, the little girl was left alone with Nurse Beverly Allett in the treatment room. Seconds after stepping out and leaving their daughter in the supervision of Beverly, the alarm was raised. Claire Peck had stopped breathing. Once more, the resuscitation team was called in, and they were successful in getting Claire to breathe once more, and she seemed to be recovering. But when the doctors once again pulled the family aside, once calm had been restored within the span of 90 seconds, Beverly Allett once again raised the alarm. This time, though, well, this time Claire passed away. The medical staff were shocked. They had gotten to know the child and her family over frequent visits, and to have her pass away so unexpectedly was too much. The nurses sobbed quietly in the washrooms and walked around in a daze for the remainder of the day. They were out of any reasonable medical explanation. And it was after the death of Claire Peck that the hospital contacted police. There had just been too many incidents. On April 20th, 1991, authorities were called to report the unexplainable events at the hospital that winter. And on May 3rd, 1991, police as well as a variety of people including a couple consulting pediatricians from Grantham and an expert professor named David Hull, all met at Grantham Hospital. There they asked Professor David Hull to produce an independent report based on the 14 cases and their medical notes. David concluded that only three were worrisome and only one showed evidence of malicious intervention in the child's health. That child being Paul Crampton, Investigators began questioning hospital staff and parents, but things weren't becoming any clearer. No one knew what was happening and everyone wanted answers. Then they questioned one nurse who had been present at every event, Beverly Allett. On May 7th, investigators pulled Beverly into a side room on the ward. She was a large, heavily built woman, quiet and pleasant. She sat down and answered all the questions and was certainly no different than any of the other nurses that they had spoken to. But what they didn't know was that Beverly had spent her entire life lying to people. And that moment in time, sitting in front of police, wasn't any different. 
Beverly Allett was born on October 4th, 1968 in the beautiful village of Corby Glen, nestled amongst the green rolling hills of the English countryside. Just on the edge of Lincolnshire and Leicester, Corby Glen was a small community where most people knew one another's business. Beverly had been the second oldest of four children and from a very early age had been an attention seeker. She grew up a little pudgy, not particularly talented or gifted in any way, and didn't stand out personality-wise. There was nothing she could ever do for others to show her the attention that she wanted, but she found other ways. Beverly always seemed to be hurt, or sick, far more than the other children. She'd always have a broken arm, or a cut, or a bandage, or something of that nature. And whenever she did, everyone would ask her about it. They would show her attention. As Beverly grew, she didn't shine academically, and failing her entry exams for high school went to a local secondary school, whereas her older sister Donna, who did shine academically, ended up going to the grammar school in Grantham. This bothered Beverly because the attention wasn't on her or her success, it was on her sister Donna. Beverly graduated at 16 with a little experience in the world of academia, but luckily befriended a nurse working at Grantham Hospital, who ended up lending her the necessary books and equipment to begin her study to join the nursing profession, which she did at 18 years old. And as she got older, Beverly began dating. And funny enough, Beverly's boyfriends would call her Fable because of the stories she would invent the fantastical tales that she needed to draw attention to herself. But not known to anyone in her personal life, not even herself, was the fact that Beverly's unusual behavior showed symptoms of Munchausen syndrome, where a person will try and draw attention to themselves by causing self-harm. And in fact, Beverly would cut herself, she would inject herself, anything to have the eyes on her. And while away in nursing school, the lies continued and escalated. Beverly injected water into one of her breasts to have it appear larger than the other. She had plunged her face in a nearly boiling water before having her temperature taken. She put feces in the fridge and feces under the stove. Curtains were set on fire. It never stopped. Not only that, but Beverly was constantly sick. Like when she had been a child. She was always sick and hurt more often than anyone else. Between 1988 and 1990, while in her nursing course, Beverly missed 160 days due to illness and, as a result, barely passed her course. But barely passing didn't stop her. Ward 4 of Grantham Hospital was a small pediatrics ward, and while filled with love and care being decorated to the children's delight, well, Ward 4 was chronically understaffed and hired Beverly Allett, who was a state-enrolled nurse, that being a nurse with two years under their belt and not yet completed her training. Grantham Hospital didn't even bother having her take a proper health screening or criminal records background check. So on February 18, 1991, Beverly Allett started her six-month contract at Grantham Hospital. And that's when, within a matter of weeks, children began to die. At that point, the hiring of Beverly Allett seemed a world away from where things had progressed to. Four deaths, constant collapses and dire health situations, and a police investigation later. 
and investigators were now looking outside of the hospital for answers. One such investigator, Neil Jones, decided to take a trip to Nottingham Hospital, where there was a freezer that contained blood samples. The samples were to be destroyed every so often, but luckily, whoever had been the attendant or steward of that responsibility wasn't as punctual, and Neil Jones was able to acquire nine blood samples of the 13 children who had been attacked. Those blood samples were quickly sent away for analysis, and the results were terrifying. Paul Crampton's blood had been amongst those sent away, and what was discovered was that Paul's blood had an insulin level, not of 500, but of 47,000. This was a huge discrepancy from the first analysis from the University of Cardiff, but why such a gigantic discrepancy? Well, the machine at the University of Cardiff, with which they tested Paul Crampton's sample, had been calibrated to 500. So what had unknowingly happened was the diagnostic tool had been maxed out. Paul Crampton's blood insulin levels were the second highest ever recorded in a human being. On this scale, it was concrete. It had been injected, and there was a killer on the loose at Grantham Hospital. Investigators began looking for the source of the insulin, which was kept on demand in a locker on the ward. A locker which had a key, and a key which had been lost by Beverly Allen. A pattern had been emerging to police. They had charted out the entire timeline, including Beverly Allen's hiring, the loss of the key to the insulin locker, the time and place of all the nurses, and the children involved. Every single time, Beverly Allen was there. On May 21st, 1991, at 7 a.m. in the morning, police arrested a sleepy-eyed Beverly at her home for the attempted murder of Paul Crampton. When police hauled her away, a team of investigators swarmed throughout her home. But there was no evidence found that could tie Beverly to the crimes. And when questioned, Beverly was calm, cool, and collected, not once showing any anxiety. And although police were then certain that they knew who was responsible, they had to release Beverly, due to lack of evidence. To compound the issue, police had to look at the practical nature of murder in a hospital. Once someone is dead, or rather someone has been murdered, the crime scene is cleaned and the body is removed. This meant that police couldn't look to the crime scene for evidence, and even worse for investigators. Parents and hospital staff alike were unwilling to accept that Beverly might be responsible and responded uncooperatively with police, even antagonistically. One sigh of relief in what seemed like a ticking time bomb situation was the removal of Beverly Allett from the hospital into the conclusion of the investigation. And Beverly Allett, as a matter of comfort and convenience, moved in with her close friend Tracy Jobson and her family. So as her presence was removed from the hospital, the attack stopped, and the children were no longer being prey to some unknown illness or cardiac arrest. But instead, things were now happening at the Jobson home, where Beverly was staying. Tracy's brother Jonathan's bed was doused in bleach, and the dog was given something that caused it to roll around in pain and foam at the mouth. Eileen Jobson, Tracy's mother, was becoming concerned with those events in her home. When asked, Tracy didn't know what was happening, 
Neither did Jonathan, Tracy's brother, and neither did Beverly. But Beverly decided to take it one step further, claiming that a poltergeist she'd seen must be responsible for the bad luck in the home. Then one day, Beverly misstepped, giving police exactly what they needed. Beverly gave Jonathan a glass of black currant juice. He sipped it and found it odd and bitter tasting, but finished the glass all the same before heading out for the day with his family and Beverly to Whittle Sea Market. Jonathan complained he felt ill and suddenly, while shopping, collapsed. It was later concluded after being rushed to a hospital that he had, well, you guessed it, Jonathan had suffered a hypoglycemic attack. Eileen Johnson called police, and with her statement, they had enough to formally charge Beverly Allett. In November 1991, Beverly was arrested by police on 13 counts in total, four murder, eight attempted murder, and one grievous bodily harm. Once again, though, she remained calm, cool, and collected, but this wasn't because of innocence, it was the physical manifestation of her underlying mental unwellness. She just simply did not operate with the same moral compass or rational thought as you and I creep, and therefore was unable to comprehend the seriousness of the circumstance. In fact, she might have been pleased to be shown so much attention and delighted at the idea of being given sympathy when it was all over. On February 15, 1993, the trial began, and her charges had ballooned up to a total of 26. By the time her trial began, though, she had lost a ton of weight to the point of looking gaunt and ill, and in fact, she didn't even attend most of her trial or the proceedings. Because, drumroll please, she was claiming to be ill. After pleading not guilty and refusing to take the stand, Beverly Allett, after so many lies, was convicted of 13 counts, 4 of murder, 9 of attempted murder, and was sentenced to 13 life sentences. So Creeps that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps. Take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. <laughs>